Hello and welcome to Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. This is the Dan Bigham episode. And if you're anything like me, you'll be rubbing your hands at the prospect of geeking out for the next hour or so. What can I tell you about Dan? Well, as a top athlete and a formidable engineer, he's one lab experiment gone wrong away from breaking the space-time continuum whilst attempting to set the world hour record. He's a hoarder and he's having a clear out, so we chat about what he might be chucking out. He's an aerodynamicist who speaks passionately about numbers, quite infectiously really, and I was keen to find out how he'll be applying all of his knowledge to his new role at Team Ineos Grenadiers. But what moment of his life would he relive if he had the chance? There's only one way to find out, folks. Don your comfiest lab coat, perch upon a swivel chair, grab your calculator and enjoy the pod. You know it's that time again. In a first for this podcast, we're featuring back-to-back episodes with two guests who also happen to be a couple, a power couple at that. And I mean that literally. Both Joss Loudon and her partner, Dan Bigham, set our records back in October 2021, within 24 hours of one another. And as we're about to learn, Dan approaches cycling in a very scientific way. And he knows exactly what he needs to do to make the jump from being British hour record holder to world hour record holder. Check it out. Dan, first and foremost, mate, thank you very, very much for joining us on Matt Stevens Unplugged. Ah, thanks for the invite. Uh, I enjoy talking and uh, yeah, the uh, been an interesting one to uh, to talk with you. Uh, it's, uh, I followed you and all your adventures over the past few years since I got into cycling. So yeah, it's awesome to finally chat. No, I'm really much, I'm really looking forward to me, but what I'd like to do uh, before we crack on um, because of recent events is basically express um, you know, my best wishes and the wishes of everybody at Sigma Sports for Egan's um, recovery. Um, I don't want to touch on it any more than that, except ex- except that we wish him all the very best. If you just pass on those regards um, from us here at Sigma Sports, that would be great because it's obviously pretty difficult for the team at the moment. Yeah, I mean, on behalf of the team, thank you. It's uh, yeah, it's not not a good time. Um, obviously, wishing the best to him as well and. Hopefully uh, he comes out of this in a, in a good situation, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's not great. Righty ho. Well, um, first off, what I like to do on the pod, um, although I'm pretty much, I think I know where you are, um, is could you uh, describe in as much detail as you want, Dan, so we can really get the scene set, where in the world you are, and what you can see immediately around you. So I'm in, in Stone, Staffordshire, actually in the house that I grew up in. Uh, myself and Joss moved in here at the start of lockdown when we were looking to buy a house, then lockdown was imminent, renting wasn't even going to be possible. So uh, my mum moved out and with her partner and gave us this house for what was planned to be, what, two weeks of lockdown? And here we are two years later. Wow. Um, and I'm in my computer room slash study. So I have a laptop, a big 34-inch screen and... Um, Mac and everything else all set up. Um, what else? Uh, nice coffee in front of me. Nice. About it. Good stuff, mate. Well, because I, I, I did actually, the precursor to that was I think I know where you are. I thought you were still in Andorra because um, obviously we, we chatted to, to Joss. I didn't, uh, we didn't um, kind of contrive to have these two pods back to back, but they they are. But I thought you were still in Andorra, mate. So you, are you going to be flitting back in two? What's, what's the score? Uh, so I'll be heading full time back to Andorra in about a week or so. Uh, so I'm back home to pack up uh, and move out. So uh, yeah, I'm busy digging through the mountains of things I've accumulated um, over my lifetime that I've left at my mum's house. And she's adamant that I need to finally tidy up and either bin or take with me. So uh, yeah, some hard decisions to be made on whether I keep, I don't know, the workbook from year seven maths or all that kind of crap that <laughs> my mum's collected over the years. It's it's so true though, isn't it? We've, uh, as, as you know, we, me, myself and Holly recently moved up from um, from the Hampton Court area where we're renting. We bought a place in Dar- Darbados in, in Derby. Um, but the amount of stuff as you get older that you accumulate and find really hard to get rid of. I do... I was looking through my old maths book and science books from 1984 and I can't get rid of them. And I've also got my son's stuff from when he was at school. He's at uni now and I can't get rid of those either. So are you somebody that gets easily attached to stuff, even though you're a, an individual and a person that works within the world of logic a lot, don't you? And, 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 and you know, science. 
I do. Yeah, unfortunately <laughs> so. And Joss is a great asset for making me realise that it's so unnecessary to keep hold of these things. But at least if I can think there might be a purpose for them in the future, I think it is in my blood to hoard. My mum is yeah. definitely a hoarder. My dad, not so much. Um, so I've, I've definitely got it from her side. But Joss is very hard on uh, what I'm allowed to keep and not allowed to keep. Um, and there are an excessive amount of everything from TT helmets, wheels, tires. I mean, you know what it's like. You just oh, like, totally. oh, that wheel. I-, I might use that one day. I might need that for this. And uh, it never gets moved on. So I'm making those hard decisions now and uh, check my eBay out next week and there'll probably be some bargains to be had. Oh, yeah, you definitely get some people interested in that. Or just as a little idea, Dan, I mean, and you could obviously need to run it by Joss, I'd imagine, but what about the Dan Bigger Museum of Stuff? Um... <laughs> I actually had an inquiry about two weeks ago from um, a bike collector in, I think it was Banbury Way, who wanted to show mine and Joss's our record bikes alongside a lot of other bikes that he'd been collecting. And uh, I said, yeah, no problem. However, they're still both heavily in use. But as soon as they're not, then you're welcome to uh, to have them there, which I think would be pretty cool. I never really considered the bikes that I ride anywhere near sort of interesting or collector's items, but obviously someone someone's keen to have them there. So uh, that was quite cool. I, I, yeah, I mean, when you look at the significant moments in your your career, and you're still a pretty young bloke, aren't you? 30, 31 years of age. And yeah. you'd like to think, although your career path has changed, we'll, we'll talk about that um, a little bit later on. But these significant moments in your career, I do like the idea that other people care about what, you, what you've done and, and are willing to do that sort of stuff. And when you're a lot older, you're looking back and you've got this wonderful um, esoteric timeline of bits you know of, of bits of stuff that you've used that have really impacted and, and been significant in your career. It's actually quite cool, isn't it? <laughs> it's very humbling when people say that and uh and to yeah want a piece of that history and there's those are cool things that i like to keep a hold of like some of the the who bought bike hats and obviously got my my track bikes that i've uh i've raced on over the years and they mean a lot to me but yeah you never quite appreciate that somebody else has, has followed that closely and has such great interest but um i do quite often nowadays anyway get a few messages from people saying oh they've Oh, they followed the story through all the who bought bike stuff and through the hour and obviously with Ineos now as well and just yeah pass on interesting anecdotes of how I've influenced what they've done or asking for a bit of advice and guidance and I try and help where I can especially with the younger kids and uh, I've had um, there's a kid just down the road actually who was asking about all manner of engineering guidance and advice he's a keen cyclist and um, he seemed like a good kid to offload a lot of kids get onto <laughs> so i invited him round and said right here's about five boxes of unwanted cycling kit fill your boots <laughs> and, well, that's, um, that's yeah. really cool though isn't it when you, you can do that you can do that and there are a i know there's there's one not too far from here i guess i think it's over in in cheshire somewhere isn't it? there's a, a charity bike it's an old bike stuff which is a charity shop just a bike bits which is great because people like yourself and myself and, and joss and a lot of the people we work closely with, over time you do accumulate a lot of stuff. And yes, we all like to do a bit of eBay, but there's some stuff that when you see how much stuff some people haven't got um, and are so eager and keen, what a wonderful thing to do just to gift people things, you know, and you can, when you see that appreciation on their face, it's flipping brilliant, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's worth its weight in gold. Um, and with what I've, I've got here, there's so much of it that, yeah, I'm just trying to trying to give away to people who will see benefit from it. I remember when I was back at uni and beg borrowing and stealing all manner of kit and equipment and, yeah, to be able to, I guess, pay that forward and give it to somebody else. Hopefully, yeah, it has an impact on them. Either financially they don't have to go out their way to, to buy an aero helmet or a skin suit or whatever or just genuinely motivates them to go out there and, and race a bit and enjoy the sport. Definitely, mate. Well, let's. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. Hopefully, because um, you, you've done so much stuff. But what I'd like to do, because I don't know the answer to this, is, and it's a it's a question I generally uh, get to um, when I'm chatting to people on the pod is is your, your very the, the formative years of, of riding a bike and how ultimately to led led to what you are doing now. So, I know you're, you're brought up in Stone, Staffordshire. You're still in the area in the, in the Midlands, but. What are your first memories of riding a bike and how ultimately did that lead you to competing um, and being one of the best in the world and now being in, you know, the, full, the cutting edge uh, of, of aerodynamics and engineering as well? There's a few little moments, I guess, throughout being a kid, a teenager and then at university. So, I mean, as a kid, I remember my dad teaching me to ride a bike and being with, uh, yeah, I think I had, a, I had a few different mountain bikes as a, 
as a junior, never rode, or junior as a kid, um, never really rode bikes until I think I was about 15 or 16. And right. I, yeah, I got a road, did I get a road bike? Yeah, it's my nan who gave me a road bike and I did a few what bike competitions that the local club Stone Wheelers had put on and I yeah. did a velodrome session there, but never really led into anything. I went off and actually played rugby for a good amount of time. I enjoyed that. It was very social, very enjoyable. All my friends did. So I kind of went down that path. I got to university and kind of realized that rugby at uni definitely is not the environment that I'd experienced with rugby at sort of college level where it was a bit, it wasn't my cup of tea. Yeah. Um, whereas I don't, as a kid, always competed in all manner of sports, whether it's athletics, swimming, tennis, squash the lot parents are just happy to just let me play sport and um found my home really with the athletics club and that was more in my head originally at the time was kind of cross training as i I kept picking up injuries in rugby and waiting to get back to rugby when i was playing back home and kept going back over the weekends and then um there was a guy there called jack lawler anderson who was on my engineering course as well who was a keen triathlete and he pushed me more towards the cycling. He, I guess he could see that maybe I was going to be a better cyclist than I was a runner and um, lent me his bike. I competed in the British Uni Super Sprint Triathlon Champs in 2011. Okay. 2012. 2012. And that's what uh, sort of got me hooked. I won that and it kind of set the ball rolling as a dirty triathlete to start off with. <laughs> dirty um, triathlete. Dirty, yeah. Um, but that, that was, yeah, I guess where for me cycling started and I was – what would have been then uh, twenty one? So it was quite late, really, when the when I really got the bug. And uh, at what point? So how did you? Did, to the, your what engineering did you specifically study at university, and how did that lead to being um, combining that with cycling? Was it you understood immediately how you what you needed to go to go faster or to make you efficient, and is that why you moved into that area? So how did these these two disciplines converge like the engineering the understanding of the importance of aerodynamics etc and your own physiological side of things how did that all converge so it all came together when i went on placement year so i would have been 2022 at that point so i went to mercedes f1 team and worked in the aero department and my dream as an engineer had always been to go into formula one that was like the big end goal and i got there and don't get me wrong, I definitely enjoyed it and I loved my time there, but I realised it wasn't what I wanted my future to be. It wasn't, um, not that I expected it to be like champagne and parties every weekend, but um, it was a lot of long nights, a lot of weekends, all-nighters. Uh, as a student there, I'd end up with doing the night shifts in the wind tunnel and stuff like that. And it, I didn't get to do the sport I wanted to do. And sure. I, it kind of pushed me more towards applying that knowledge but to a different field and that's where i met a guy called simon smart who yep. i'm sure a lot of people know through uh scott bikes envy wheels and skin suits and drag to zero and he was based at mercedes wind tunnel and um, cross paths with him there and yeah got on really well and he kind of pushed me more towards cycle sport aero and um sort of gave me some ideas to go back to to uni with to kind of tweak my motorsport engineering um, modules to be a bit more cycling specific and I was quite lucky that one of my lecturers as well was um, an XGB cyclocross rider so he was right. very keen as well to to let me do that and yeah my final uh, my undergrad and then my master's I turned motorsport engineering into kind of cycling engineering um, even though theoretically I had to keep it within the motorsport side of things but they were quite happy to let me as long as I kind of kept loosely in the in the realms of what the module needed me to study and um, yeah that really pushed me into the the world of of cycling and to kind of join my two loves of engineering and and the athletic side. No, it's it's a, it's really it's. And at what point then during that did you think did the hour record either? Because that's one of them as well as your ability on the road, which is undoubted, and and TTs. The hour record is we, we all know how significant, how important the prestige that that holds. At what point during this time then did you think well that is. The ultimate combination it's such a pure event isn't it um the psychological physiological side but and importantly as we all know the engineering side at what point did you think yeah that's something that i'd really like to have a proper crack at quite early on i would say i think um once i'd gone back to uni to finish up my bachelor's i'd really that, that was when the um the hour record started to kick back off again so you had jens voigt do it uh yeah. matthias brandler rowan dennis and all that that kind of big rush 
and I followed them so closely. So within the cycling club at uni, we'd, we'd have nights where we'd just sit there and, and watch the hour record, <laughs> drink beer and watch the hour record. It was a dream. Um, and it actually pushed me to have a go. So in March 2014, I did an outdoor hour record uh, at Palmer Park in Reading. All right. It was March 8th. I think it was like three degrees. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was not. No, I hadn't <laughs> quite understood all the uh, the handles and levers that you can pull to optimize performance by that point. And um, yeah, I just got on the track and rode full gas for an hour, and it was forty six point nine kilometers, which I was pretty happy with at the time. Yeah. Um, it finished me off for a good few days, um, but that kind of kick started, or at least set the the wheels in motion for wanting to do a proper hour record at some point on an indoor track, and that kind of went on and on, and I. I talked about it with my coach quite a bit. I'd been to Wiggins Hour Record in the flesh and it was, I think a couple of weeks after that when I first started riding the track, I went to the British University Track Championships to ride the individual suit just after Wiggins had set the hour record in London. And yeah. then it was, well, it was 2015, it was 2020, February 2020, when I finally got round to doing a full gas hour record on the track in training. Yeah. Um, which is 52.651, I want to say Good it was, at Derby. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that was really then, then, then I was bitten. It was the start of COVID and yeah. um, so much time on my hands. We couldn't team pursuit anymore uh, with the UCI regulation changes um, and the fact that, yeah, everyone's locked away. So, yeah, it was the perfect opportunity to, to be selfish and to, to really strive towards that one goal of breaking the hour record and I had yeah what two and a two and a bit kilometers to find um and yeah over a year and a bit two years really um yeah I found it just about I mean your obviously your record obviously it was uh you and Josh both did them back to back didn't you? You, you yours was of course 54.723 on the 1st of October in Switzerland and um there must have been an immense satisfaction um absolutely meant satisfaction to achieve that especially now that you're well I understand although I've read are you looking at doing it again yeah perhaps <laughs> perhaps uh I'm definitely considering well no consider I'm, I'm planning towards it I so the record I did was the British hour records so that was yes Bradley yep. Wiggins yep. um I wasn't on the um UCI registered testing pool, um, which was one of the limiting factors. I mean, people have said, oh, just pay the money. I mean, there's more than just the £8,000 of that cost to actually put on a, the world hour record. You're talking somewhere in the region of between thirty and £80,000. big investment, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of effort and it's a scary thought as well. You don't know if you can do it. And yeah. um, beating Wiggins at effectively sea level was... Um, that box that box i needed to tick to say actually yes you can do this it's not going to be easy it's yeah. it's going to be hard and you're going to need to absolutely push everything that i physically can do to scrape over that 55089 mark but i know it's doable now so i'm happy to kind of press on and, and look for the support and sponsorship that i needed to to go ahead and do that um, uh, so what what intrigues me is, and, and I've spoken to, I've done, a, I'm, I'm intrigued with it, not to the level that you are, just as a, as a spectator and, and my understanding of, of of physiology and the the understanding of aerodynamics. But the quicker we go, the harder it is to get any any more gains, isn't it? And I'm and I'm wondering, in order to break the record, um, I mean ballpark here, how, how much faster do you think you can go from a physiological perspective, like from your engine, and then how much of a percentage do you think you can go faster or you well you know the numbers you know how much further you have to go but where are you going to find that i mean in such a short period of time and do you think it's going to be more working on your own physical effort or 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 the aerodynamic side of it or the engineering side or a, again a combination of the two which is obviously constant you can't have one without the other can you it's, yeah. it's this it's this constantly striving balance isn't it but where are you going to find them dan <laughs> <laughs> million dollar question um yeah. the yeah, I mean, to, to to model the hour record is actually quite simple. And the value that matters is what's divided by CDA. Just like if, you, if you're trying to race up Von 2 or up to ES, it's what's per kilo. Yeah. Because you put more energy in and the biggest loss is gravity or the of biggest course, yeah. resistance force is gravity. Um, and when you're riding around flat at, on a circle for an hour, yeah, the biggest one is aero. So that ratio... Is we have a value that we need to target and how you achieve that doesn't matter. You can put more energy in or you can reduce the losses on the other side. It's just the ratio of the two that matters. So I I rode at about three or 
calculated but pretty accurate 355 watts for my hour record and had a cda of about 0.160 so i need to find in wattage terms seven watts whether that's for my legs or for my equipment or a bit of both right Uh, where i get them from i think probably more on the physiology side i believe uh just based on where i am as an athlete my size my weight etc compared to other athletes what's for kilos which is a good physiological measure i'm not really near the top guys so the, the shows is probably a bit of headroom there whereas on the equipment front i um i'm pretty damn optimized yeah maybe a couple of watts i could find there but not yeah. huge amount. so i guess that that's the hardest bit then isn't it really i mean the engineering side is hard and challenging but physically to tr- knowing knowing you're on the very cutting edge of the science side in terms of making that bike and your, and, and and your body in combination with that moving quickly through the air um, the fact that you've got to find the watts yourself is arguably the hardest bit, isn't it? Because <laughs> that, that, that's going to mean um, tra- training harder or, or looking. At, I mean, it, it's simple as that. If you're, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, I mean, I've got the right people around me for that. It's just um, creating the environment and the time to do that. And yeah, obviously, spend a lot of time doing helping other people to go fast. And at some point, you have to be selfish yeah. uh, and focus on your own goals. And is that walking the tightrope of um, obviously having a job and everything else that goes with that to trying to ride your bike as an elite athlete and recover. Um, And I think I've I've balanced it pretty well over the years, especially the last couple of years have helped with not having to travel quite so much. um, And I've had some really good consistent training. And I think that's the major thing. It's not that I need to do anything silly. I'm not out there doing 30, 40 hour weeks. I'm sort of 15, 20 hour weeks, which for most elite guys is, is pretty low, but it's yeah. just making sure I'm on top of that day in, day out, week in, week out, that I just tick those boxes and, and keep progressing and not yeah. just have a hero week and a terrible week, yeah. which is not always easy. That's that's the battle. But if I can find, yeah, those 20 hours for the next seven, eight months, then um, I think it could be in the situation that I need to be to perform. And I'd imagine, I mean, this isn't taking anything away from yourself. We, we know that the one person that is toying with the idea and he's he's in the same team that you are is 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 mr philip ogana who is an absolute beast let's make you know make no bones about it um mm-hmm. a different sort of physiological machine um so i'd imagine you'd want to do it before him because you I, I i'd imagine you're if you were you'd be helping him a little bit towards what he's going to do or is that separate how does it how's this going to work <laughs> <laughs> oh um yeah i am i'm all in to be helping him um yeah. i mean that that's effectively part of why i was brought on in the team um sure. it's a bit of a no-brainer in respect i've, I've learned a lot about the hour record and a lot about the track and the best way to prepare for it the best equipment pacing strategies nutrition atmospherics all that kind of stuff of I've learned through just lots of time and experiments and um, just the knowledge transfer there, I think will help Filippo a huge amount to be in a good spot without having to commit quite so much to the track as you maybe otherwise would have done. Obviously a lot of our records attemptees have, have wiped off a lot of their season to have a go at this. And I don't yeah. think Filippo needs to do that. Like he's already got a lot of headroom as an athlete. He is head and shoulders above me physiologically. Yeah. Um, so he could, he could do it on any given day and, that's fine and great but what we want to do is make sure he does something properly epic and really does what he do what does what he's capable of so my role is definitely to to assist in that whether that's equipment testing specific nutrition intervention testing um, pacing strategies uh, and then just actually helping the guy hands-on when he's when he is on track doing some analysis for him and informing him and just yeah doing all i can to make sure he's well prepared. I mean, he's obviously very familiar with the track. He's he's not a roadie coming across to it. He's no. um, he's Olympic gold medalist in yes, team exactly. pursuit. Um, yeah, and so he, he's he's pretty good. And 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 he seems more than able, given the, the reasons you just said, to to combine the demands of of running a grand tour, um, resting up a bit, and then focusing on the track as well. I mean, there's that there's that real understanding now. I mean, it, it doesn't appear to me from observing from a distance that. Um, it's quite as complex. Like a few years ago, as you just said, you you really would have to put the road to one side to focus on the track. But clearly now there's this, um, I wouldn't say they're fully dovetailed, but there's much more of an overlap and there are benefits, aren't there, from from doing both at the same time to a degree, as long as you, you're rested up and the nutrition plan's there. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And you look across all the top, top road, uh, top track riders at the Olympics and they came from the road, whether that's yeah. Ethan Hayter, Matt Walls, Felipe Garner, even the Danish squad, all of them were, were road riders. They rode yeah. for World Tour or Pro Continental teams. So it's, um, yeah, it's genuinely accepted now. And I think as well, just not having 
the time your your entire life spent at a velodrome is, is worth quite a bit yeah, just totally, for your mental yeah. state to uh to have different places different training camps different people different races and to enjoy riding your bike not just um be not forced every day but to go every day to a velodrome and ride around in circles can get pretty pretty monotonous so um i think there's a lot to be said in just riding the road for for a break and something different definitely it's always a thread that um that, that crops up at some point within all the conversations I've had pretty much on every podcast is is whatever the discipline, whatever your whatever you, you do within the sport, fundamentally to succeed and to achieve, um, there needs to be uh, moments where you just enjoy the purity of, of just having fun on a bike as well. You know, and even with if pummeling yourself in a road race, it's still there's the enjoyment, isn't there? That 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 has to remain in there. I mean, and when when you're looking at the the dedication, the sacrifice of elite of riders at this sort of level, that still has to be, it's a key component ingredient. Otherwise the, the, the morale would just ebb away, won't it? Yeah. I think, um, it's just the key part of cycling. You've got to find what you enjoy in the sport and do that. Whether that is, yeah, it, it might be that some people thoroughly enjoy waking up and riding on the velodrome every, all day, every day. And some people love riding to, to the cafe and just shooting the breeze with their mates. Some people like exploring and doing ultra gravel races. For me, I, I love the maths and the application of all the yeah. engineering and nerdy stuff. And yeah, people laugh at me when I say that, but it's it's the part of the sport that I love that you can break it down with physics. And yeah. that's incredibly enjoyable, albeit nerdy um, for me. And we're each in the sport for our own reasons. And I think you've got to find that niche and, and exploit it. And that's probably the key to good longevity because if not, it's, it's a hard sport at the end of the day. There's a lot yeah. of suffering involved. Yeah, I, I, it, it really, the nerdy stuff, I'm I'm not a big nerd in relation to it, but I, I find it intriguing. And and what am I now, 52? I I don't have a, a, when I ride on the road, I don't really look at numbers at all, but on Zwift, it's all the metrics there and I'm fascinated. I'm obviously plateauing and going ever so slightly downwards, but regardless, you kind of know where you sit. And I, I think it's that, that wealth of information um, is fascinating, but as long as it's contrasted with the fact that you can still go out and enjoy your bike. Um, and actually, talking about numbers, okay, your, your hour record was roughly 355 watts, 0. 0.160 CDA. Ballpark, I'd imagine that Filippo is going to be riding maybe 60, 60 watts more, maybe 70 watts more than yourself. What kind of is that? Maybe 80 watts more than yourself maybe over an hour? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe 100. I don't know. We look, I guess we're looking at maybe four, 450 or something like that. What CDA would he roughly need then to? Um, what would you be looking at? Obviously, a CDA would be a lot higher than yours because he's just a big bloke, isn't he? Cutting through the air. But um, what balance would we roughly be looking at, Dan? Um, if you don't mind, without you know wanting to get all the secrets, what what kind of balance would you be looking at? <laughs> um, so as long as he's below 0.2, he'll break right. the record pretty much. Okay, right. Uh, 450 watts. Um, right. And yeah, he's a big guy, but he's he's below that um, for sure. Uh, I mean, back at the Road Worlds, he put some numbers out for his um, for the team time trial, which was 24 minutes or something like that, and I think he did 490ish, something Crams. mad like that. So um, yeah. Yeah, obviously, 24 minutes is not an hour and it's not on the track. It's it's out on the road and all the other caveats that go with riding on a velodrome and fixed gear and centripetal forces and all that kind of stuff knocks your power down a bit. So yeah. it's not quite a, as easy as saying what you can do on the road for an hour is what you can do on the track. I, I definitely get a good sort of 10% drop off between the two, 5-10%. Um, but, it, yeah, it's he's uh, definitely a, a good chunk ahead. So I think we... I don't want to speak on his behalf, but no, I think he's definitely not. going to do something pretty pretty awesome. And um, I guess we'll wait and see over the next six months or so as and when he, he gets, gets on the track and gets preparing and, and seeing what's truly possible. But um, I've got some cool ideas to really help him out. Obviously, I've followed him pretty closely over the years and seen what he's done and been helping Ashton to make sure Ashton can beat him here and there on the track. Of course, um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's been a bit of rivalry there. It's quite interesting, and I get on with Filippo quite well now. We, this last camp, we've kind of yeah, bonded quite well and had a good few chats, and, um, yeah, he uh, has dragged me up a few climbs and made me suffer, and it's <laughs> been quite enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, I, it, you must get so much enjoyment because you've worked with several teams over the years, um, you know, Canyon Tram, and you've done bits with Yumbo, you know, behind the scenes a little bit, but you must... What's it like when you're speaking to these great champions and they're looking to you for the advice to go quick? You must find that really, really satisfying in, in enjoying that you're able to impart that real scientific knowledge and see these athletes go quicker. I mean, I guess 
is that one of the reasons you do it? Did, did you like sharing that information? Clearly, you must have. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's one of the things we did when we joined uh, INEOS just back in November. We did sort of personality traits uh, analysis across the entire team to understand what the, the drivers were for everybody. And Right, okay. Um, one of them for me, or my, my primary driver is to help others, which I when I look back, I, I totally can see it. Um, yeah. A lot of people kind of thought my drivers would be around being sort of analytical and being sort of correct and, and bang on. But for me, it was about success, achieving, but helping others on that journey. And um, yeah, when, when they athletes come to me for help and guidance, it really, really feels like they're buying into the process. And um, yeah, I find that quite rewarding and Often, um, yeah, those who come to me for advice, I'll really jump on it and, and help them a lot. It's been the same over the past sort of five years or so, like Ashton, John, Johnny, uh, all the guys that I've, I've worked with domestically, they, the ones who really want to absorb the knowledge are the ones that I'll really kind of get my teeth stuck into and, and throw yeah. as much effort behind it as I can. And um, yeah, it's really nice when they do come in and, and ask all those kind of questions. And it shows they're thinking about it as well, which I quite like. I really enjoy having athletes who are, thinking for their own well thinking on their own and thinking about their own performance and how they might improve it and have questions and queries and want to investigate new things new ideas and it just shows that yeah they're vested and they want to improve and they're not just kind of thinking they're on this sort of conveyor belt of performance that they're going to ride their bike and they're going to turn up and i'm going to throw a helmet skin suits and wheels and tires at them and they've just got to ride it's the ones who really invest in the process they're going to see the big big improvements and the big gains so yeah, when someone like Filippo comes over and wants to ask a few questions, it's yes, yeah, a bit of a dream to be honest. No, it's it's, it's really lovely, and if I hope you don't mind me saying, Dan, as well. I said I I, I wouldn't say I know you exceptionally well, but we've had um, a few chats over the years at, at, at I think mostly online actually, given the COVID kind of situation. But um, when you look traditionally, and and maybe it's a bit of a cliche, but when you look at um, people who are really embedded in the sciences, quite often um, those people um, have struggle at struggle communicating or they have so for you to have the the, the skill set that you have in terms of your your knowledge of science but also the fact you're you're an exceptionally human you're, you're very um erudite um communicative uh, it that must make the whole process easy because it can be quite alien especially if you've got people who come from a different world trying to get that message across you're the perfect conduit really um between the the the, the pure science and the, and the coaching side I think it's it's just come from time of being in that social environment. I think engineers, whether it's just the, the type of person that goes down that path and the social skills they do or don't have, or yeah, just in general, they don't always communicate that well. And it's yeah. something I've struggled with. And my teammates will say the same, that I, I have to actively think about how I need to present this information to yeah. a person because they don't have the same um, experiences or knowledge. Yeah, yeah they, they think differently. You have to talk in their terms. And that's hopefully where I, as you said, can be that conduit, that bridge between all the people who probably think in similar ways to me within the team, the sort of performance support guys who are very sort of analytical, very scientific, very objective. And then you've got the riders who are a bit more sort of subjective, focusing on their feel, how they perceive things. Um, and you've got to kind of bridge the two and, and talk in their terms and also understand how they want to engage with that kind of knowledge. So you don't just want to turn up at their A race and throw a load of new ideas on them. You have to kind of go through the process and get a little bit of, of buy-in with them, a bit of rapport, and then you can start to start to talk to them and explain a bit of the maths and the physics behind. Uh, and typically that gets them going and they'll come back with a million more questions, but it's yeah. something that I've always tried to do to kind of teach them to think for themselves rather than me to just lead and say, this is the way to do it. It's provide the tools, provide the knowledge for them to, to go out there and ask their own questions. Yeah. Uh, and just to wrap that little bit up, I think there's nothing, uh, I think as you get older uh, and more experienced, that's when you really start to appreciate the benefits of learning as well. <laughs> it actually can be, it's so rewarding when you learn stuff and you, and, and you can do stuff with it. Um, wonderful, wonderful. Right. Okay. We've ascertained, although I thought you're in Andorra, you're actually in Stone. Um, uh, you're from that neck of the woods um, mm -hmm. because that's what you popped on the email. So based on that, I've done some research. And Dan, sit back, relax. Well, put your thinking cap on because it's time for the Stone Quiz. <laughs> the Stone Quiz. The Stone Quiz. Now it's time for the Stone Quiz. <laughs> I love I, I love these jingles. Uh, what do you think of the, rate the jingle first, mate? 
six. Six? Oh, Doyle. Oh, mate. Was that six out of six or six out of ten? Oh, well, it's an interesting jingle. Um, anyway, it's time for the stone. Uh, so... Um, every single uh, pod guest, oh, the last 20 or so episodes, uh, I've done a hometown quiz, which I always enjoy researching. Um, uh, but I'm not going to put you too much on the spot because of the, the format of the quiz, Dan, is multiple choice. So if you, didn't, okay. if you don't know the answer, just have a bit of a guess. Four questions, multiple choice. Are you ready? I am. Okay. Question number one. We're going back in time for this question. A quite considerable period of time. Um, Dan, what was the name of the Iron Age Celtic tribe whose territory Stone laid within, obviously, back in the Iron Age? So I want from you the name of the Celtic tribe whose territory Stone laid within in the Iron Age. And the choices are as follows, okay? A, was it the Tuvasii tribe, um, the people of the rocks? Was it the Lactitius tribe, the people of the woods? Was it the Cornovi people, the people of the horn? Or was it the Hamui people, the people of the bear? So the Tuvasii, the Lactitius, the the Cornovi, or the Hamovi people? (laughs) Wow. Uh. Yeah. So the people of the rocks, the people of the woods, the people of the horn, or the people of the bear? So... I don't think it's A, because I think you put that in rocks and stone, whereas the name stone comes from uh, King Wolfad, who killed his own sons and piled, the locals piled stones on top of them. So I think that's a deceptive one. Okay. So, but the other three, uh, I'm just going to have to guess. I'm going to go with um, B, People of the Woods. It is correct. Oh, no, it's not correct. That's what I made up. It's actually, Sorry, C is the right answer. It's the Cornovi, oh. the people of the horn. So the Tuvasii, the Lachisius, um, and the Hamui, I made up uh, completely um, with just combining Greek, Latin, and a bit of Italian, uh, basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, no, it was the, the Cornovi people, the people of the horn, who um, whose tribe laid within stone uh, apparently uh, according to a 12th century document Dan there wow. we go uh, so question number two so it's, I'll be honest with you mate um, it's not a great start but we've still got three further questions okay just to, I like to summarize uh, your performance as we go through as I'm sure you'll appreciate right okay this is uh, this is a good one um, but they're all quite good if you don't mind me saying right what national association Dan is located in stone? So what national association is is, uh, located in stone? Is it A, the National Association of Cobblers? B, the National Association of Chimney Sweeps? C, the National Association of Butchers? Or D, the National Association of Horse Whisperers? I'm going to go cobblers because uh, we had Lotus Shoes, uh, who were one of the big cobblers of the UK. Uh, oh, right. High Street. So I reckon cobblers. Okay. Um, your final answer for cobblers? It's chimney sweeps. Oh, yeah. Sorry, mate. Um, okay. Let's let's <laughs> take a step well, back. We, we're halfway through, but you still can get 50% of this quiz right. Um, okay. So there's still hope. Um, but you're, let's equate it to an hour record. You're probably half a lap down. So you've got to do a... If Colin Sturgis rode our record, you've got to do a Colin. All right, you've got to... Yeah. I did ride mine like a Colin. <laughs> I think you'd appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I don't know how we used to find that in the t- in the pursuit back in the day, but um, yeah. Right, okay. Question three. Stone has an independently run news website um, servicing, uh, from an entertainment information point of view, the people of Stone, uh, unsurprisingly. Um, what is it called? <laughs> a little bit of Stone. Uh, it's correct. It, and it, 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 is, it is called a little bit of stone. Are you a regular? Um, I, I am. Have a look? You are. You go on. Brilliant. Um, uh, I, my, just the choices, because I did spend a bit of time coming up with these. A, stone cold nuggets, which, you know, I quite like. <laughs> B, stone life. A little bit, little bit loose. And then, There's a magazine called Stone Life. Is there? Okay, yeah. right. And then D, stone chatter online. But it is indeed a little bit of stone, so well done. And I think, uh, Niall, if we're okay, um, we'll get Niall on briefly. We, we can give uh, Dan a bonus point there because he actually named it without going through the others. Is that okay, uh, Niall? 
Absolutely, yeah. Okay, great stuff. So you've got, actually got two points. So you've managed to pull back. This is this could be Colin-esque. Um, well done. So two points there. So uh, two from three so far. Right. Final question in the uh, the stone quiz, Dan, is is this little perler. What is Stone's motto uh, underneath the coat of arms, basically, translated from the Latin? Okay, so this is in English. So what is Stone's motto translated from the Latin? Is it, let Stone be strong, let Stone be hard, let Stone be firm, or let Stone be wise? So it's in the, it's got the coat of arms, which has changed over the years, but it's essentially it's a knight's helmet with a, a griffin, I think, and another and another animal on the side. But the the motto underneath has remained unchanged um, since the coat of arms creation. Mm. Frustratingly, I'm getting my school coat of arms in my head instead, and that definitely does not help. Um, okay. Uh, let stone be firm. Correct, Amundo. What a fight back from Dan Bigham. Uh, so um, you've got um, wait, it's still three, three out of four. That's not bad. Because some of the bonuses. So, so in, if you put, change that to percentages, that's seventy-five percent in the Stone Quiz. So let's have a round of applause from our studio audience. <laughs> what did Josh get? She must have beaten me. I bet she nailed um, this. Oh God, actually, um, let me just look back. I think because that quiz comes out. I know you'll be, this will, it comes out Saturday, uh, Friday. I think, actually, let's have a look back. She got 100%. <laughs> she absolutely steamrolled the quiz, and we had to look back um, about 20 episodes or 15 episodes to somebody else who got 100%. So bragging rights with, um, with Josh, she I'm afraid, Dan, mate. She a box of knowledge and always upstages me. She was, yeah, I mean, even the questions that she didn't quite know there was a beautiful logic to the way she chipped away and and, and almost like an archaeologist digging away at a skeleton, just look until she found the answer. Um, there were a lot of, un, you know, un, un, uh, uncomfortable pauses. I thought she'd gone offline, but she, she did it. Um, right. Okay. So. Just to add, actually, she, um, she got 100%, but she also got one wrong. Oh, but she, oh, she got a bonus, didn't she? Yeah. We gave her a bonus. Because this is your quiz, Matt. You can get 100% and get one wrong. Yes, you can. So, uh, or you can get 100% or get 75% and get one wrong too. Uh, two wrong. So, it's um, it's a, it's an evolving fluid quiz. Um, yeah, don't, don't set up an exam board. <laughs> no, I, no, that's a bloody good point. I imagine I'd be inundated with emails and un- unhappy students, wouldn't I? And the parents of unhappy well, students. Or maybe happy students are getting 100% even yeah, the answer yeah, it'll be... Yeah. Yeah, it'll be it'll be it'll be a challenge, but um, well done on the quiz, um, and, and thanks for getting stuck in, mate. Um, so, how long did you actually spend? Um, lived, have you lived in Stone or around all your life then? Yeah, pretty much. Although I've moved, I've moved about through university yeah. and then after uni, but um, I've always had a base here. So even when I was living in Derby, um, I actually bought a house with my brother back in Stone. So I spent three years as a homeowner and spent a grand total of about three weeks actually living there. Uh, so my brother basically got a free house. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, I know. And then, uh, yeah, with COVID, that obviously brought, brought us back here. But um, yeah, heading off to Andorra now for the foreseeable future. It should be quite a fun adventure. Yeah, I mean, let's talk. I mean, a great way in to talk about your, your plans for the food. You're moving over there with Joss because Joss has obviously joined a, a new team as well. Um, so, how did the the Ineos thing all come about? I know you've had a relationship um, with them for a while, obviously through LinkedIn BC and stuff. But how? When did you ultimately say, okay, this is what I want to do? Because it is a big, it's a big decision, isn't it? To it's a lot of upheaval. Um, so, how did it come about? Uh, a chance meeting with uh, with Dave Railsford uh, over in Derby, and then we got talking. Uh, they had started to discuss this kind of role that I'm in now, um, just before COVID, and then COVID had kind of put it on the back burner. They'd had uh, Ineos obviously come on as their title sponsor, or they're, they're in the team, I think, and um, they also sponsored Mercedes F1, and there's been a lot of cross pollination of ideas between the F1 team and the cycling team, and one thing that came up was this kind of glaring lack of a sort of test engineer, race engineer kind of role within the cycling team. So they discussed getting somebody in to fill that. And um, yeah, when I got chatting to Dave, he was asking what I'm up to in the future. At this point, it was sort of April, May last year. And said, well, as things currently stand, I'm working with the Danish Federation through to Tokyo, but no actual solid plans 
beyond that, um, I'd had a few discussions with UNOX, which was obviously quite interesting and definitely very attractive with, yeah. with Joss riding for them as well um, and their ambitions. But with what Dave uh, Rod eventually offered, it was um, an, a bit of a no-brainer really to, to join Ineos that was kind of tying everything that I did into one location, which is bit of a dream really it's the yeah the engineering side the riding side um just the whole lot in one big package consolidated so i don't have to sort of spin lots of plates and trade time here with with time with somebody else it's just yeah. all in with with one team and um yeah it was definitely a bit of a dream when uh when yeah we had that conversation and kind of agreed all role and everything else it was uh yeah it's pretty awesome i mean when you look at the uh, in your, just look at the the, the elite landscape in terms of the road and, and Ineos have, as for, formerly a Sky have always been at the cutting edge but quite clearly other teams now aren't very far away in fact you could argue depending on your point of view that some teams are maybe inching ahead um, but but still quite clearly it's a team that is ridiculously optimised it's it's insane the attention to detail that has gone on you know, with, with Dave at the helm and I've spent a little bit of time with the team from time to time and it's amazing to see it in action so the team's pretty much optimised anyway you'd imagine so so you're, you're working within, uh, I would imagine, a fascinating but quite finite realm, especially as we move on and, and we're looking at this, this search for speed all the time. So it's going to be quite a challenging role. And can you just deconstruct it ever so slightly, as much as you can, um, exactly what you're going to be looking at or what you're going to try and identify and help the riders and the team with? Sure. So I guess the first thing is that I think Dave and Rod realised that the team had started to not, not step backwards, but they were stagnating relative to the other, other teams who were either catching up, as you say, possibly even depending on your viewpoint, got ahead. Yeah. Um, and I think it's good to realise that they need to change and the change needs to be kind of the status quo. You can't just do the same thing and expect to improve. You need to constantly push forward. And they brought a lot of new people on. Uh, yeah. And some of the old guys have, have obviously headed off, like Tim Kerrison. But yeah, some of the new guys like Ben Williams, Robbie Anderson, Turn Van Erp, Ator, loads of new people have come in and... Uh, um, like it's the perfect time, this kind of boiler pot of ideas and opportunity. So with me, um, I mean, the role itself does definitely keep evolving, but effectively I do everything from uh, equipment testing. So whether that's um, testing new wheels, tires, development of that, uh, drivetrain, um, skin suits, helmets, all the rider positioning stuff, whether that's on the velodrome, wind tunnel, out in the in the field uh i am starting now as well on all the pacing strategies the equipment selection gearing tire pressures basically the race performance side um and working with the riders and their coaches on how they can best utilize that data ahead of competition and then in competition and then learn from it afterwards as well uh doing quite a bit of development around all our models in the back end so how we predict performance um how we improve performance um how we measure things, uh, all the sensors that we have, all that kind of stuff, um, the nerdy kind of techie stuff um, that goes on behind the scenes. There's a lot of that going on. Uh, and then I'm used as a test rider as well. So when we're doing like testing of clothing, uh, whether that's like in the wind tunnel or maybe thermal testing or anything like that, it all kind of falls on me to be that test rider. So um, the first camp we had um, uh, a new uh, gas analyzer. So we we're looking at all the substrate utilization of athletes. So basically measuring whether using fat or carbs, but I was the test mule for all the different protocols that we might use. So okay. let's get Dan, put him on a, on a turbo, um, <laughs> and, on and um, try different ramp tests and step tests yeah. and everything else. So yeah, all manner of stuff like that. Um, and generally as well, just being somebody to ask questions of. So often coaches, athletes, DSs, staff members will, will ask, oh, like we've been thinking about this or what's the impact of that have, or if this scenario plays out, how is this going to impact on the riders for the rest of the race? All that kind of stuff. Um, I guess in some respect falls to, to me, if not Paul Barrett, who's my boss. Um, and then we kind of within the performance support team discuss it and uh, put a plan in place to try and answer those questions. So um, yeah, there's a lot of different areas to it and it's definitely going to keep changing as I sort of become more embedded and we see different areas for me to spend my time. It's obviously a finite resource. We don't have 10 of me's and 10 of Paul's and 10 of Ator's and 10 of Ben's and all that. And we could uh, crack on and do everything we ever dreamed of. There's still um, a lot of riders and a, a lot of areas that we could focus on. And we need to be smart about how we utilize that. But um, yeah, it's kind of a, 
a very ripe environment for improvement and yeah. uh, enjoying that. Uh, no, it's you said a few minutes ago that it was you know it was quite a um, not a small role but a finite. I mean, it sounds like there's when you when you start to really you know list it and unravel it and look at the potential areas for improvement or even not even improvement more rider understanding of the importance of these elements which even though riders are very, you know very very switched on nowadays there's still riders absorb this information differently and 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 you know it's a it's a, a real balancing act and i guess that's in tandem with the coaches and also an interesting character that we both know very well steve cummings has come in hasn't he um yeah, in, yeah. in relation to the the race strategy type of thing. So, in, in, and he understands pacing arguably like like no other. I mean, the optimization of effort given over certain terrain. Steve is probably at the, was at the forefront, wasn't he? Incredible mm-hmm. uh, knowledge there. So, so you're as well as improving the, the speed of the riders, the optimization of the riders. There, there's a, there's a, there is a tactical overlay that you're you're going to be educating the riders in relation to how best to get the most out of themselves um, with the quick. You know, they have to. You can optimize the equipment to a point, but. Ultimately, when you're looking at pacing stretches and stuff like that, you're reliant on the rider. So you have it's quite a key role, isn't it? Yeah, getting the riders educated and understanding of the process is is really important. Again, to buy into that because there are some people who, I mean, over my years, I've had people say that's rubbish. Don't believe in that. That's doesn't make sense. Does I don't believe in it. Blah blah blah. Um, it's funny because science is true, whether you believe in it or not. And um, once they do buy into it, they really see the benefits. And yeah, the the guys who do then move a good step forward and to be honest, I haven't come across a single person in the team yet who hasn't sort of bought into the process and yeah. wants to engage with it, which is, it's really nice. It's, it's definitely a big task. There's 31 guys in the team uh, and a lot of ambitions and a lot of goals. And we obviously need to prioritize some races over others and we won't be out to, to win smaller TTs. We're obviously targeting the big ones and the grand tours and, and the world champs and, and all those kind of events. So there's, yeah, definitely some strategy in, um, in how we distribute all that resource. But um, yeah. yeah, when the riders buy into it, then they really do see the benefit. And Steve, Steve's a great guy for being that conduit as well. People still see him as a rider. He's obviously yeah. raced against most of the, the people in the team. Yeah. So uh, when they take advice from from him, they're seeing it as somebody who's probably ridden up the road <laughs> when they've been flat out and wondering how Steve's doing that. Yeah. So they, yeah. they definitely, uh, he carries a lot of weight in his... Uh, experience is, is worth a huge amount. Uh, I did the, um, the recce of the Tour de France stage one, two, and three over in Denmark with him about a month or right. so ago. And okay. that was just a lot of driving, <laughs> don't get me wrong. But yeah. um, I, obviously, I was quite experienced with Denmark, especially around Copenhagen and the time trial there. And just a good opportunity to sit in the car and, and talk to Steve and get to know him as a person, but also talk about all his racing experiences and what we can learn from that and how we can pass that knowledge on to, to the team. And I would imagine from what you've described and your role is a varied one and you're completely integrated within the team. So I'd imagine there's a lot of uh, testing involved. And, and what I mean is the environments that you're going to be working with and are going to be quite varied, aren't you? You're, I would imagine, are you going to be on some races as well from time to time, as well as doing stuff behind the scenes? Yeah, in fact, I'm, I'm heading to the south of France for Sage next week, uh, just before I move to Andorra. So I'll be there helping with that, especially around the time trial, but sure. just to be on the ground and see see how things work on the race. There's obviously ways we can always improve how we work. Um, so a fresh set of eyes is always helpful. I think you often become blind to your blind spots and people carry on working around things rather than addressing them head on sometimes just because that's the easiest way at that moment and it becomes ingrained. So there's kind of a bit of um, having a fresh set of eyes on a problem can can bring some new solutions. So yeah, I'll be there at a few races, definitely early on and definitely a lot of the Grand Tours, um, doing what I can on the ground uh, to yeah, help the guys go fast. Sounds sounds like a, it's going to be a lot of fun. It sounds like there's so much to get your teeth into, um, and it you must be, be honest, pretty excited about it as well as uh, you know. It's, it's it must be, um, yeah. It's a big big step, isn't it? Yeah, I was chomping at the bit to get started, and then uh, the first two weeks was uh, a lot of meetings. We had um, performance staff meetings in in Woking and then in Paris, and um, a lot of discussion, which is I think the right. It was definitely the right approach, and um, really quite interesting to be involved in those. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of things. I was like, we really need to get on and get get doing this now. And um, yeah, it's it's been great fun just to start cranking those handles and, and start doing the things that I want to do in the team. And I know I think how things have previously been done as well. There's obviously a lot of knowledge and a lot of uh, experience within the team. And even just digging through the history of all the tests that have been done positionally or on clothing or anything else, there's 
a lot of gems in there. And it was so nerdy when I got my, my MacBook from the team. Joss was like shaking her head at me, but it turned up and I was just like, this is great. Now I've got access to everything they've done. This is so cool. I can just sit there and like absorb the past 10 years of Team Sky, um, which is, yeah, it was a fun night. Uh, as much as that's a really nerdy thing to say. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I bet it is. I mean, it's, it, it is, it's exceptionally interesting. I mean, I mean, actually, just going back a year. I mean, last year for you, put on a personal level, you know, um, was was a successful one, which has led to what you're going to be doing um, this year, in ter- as well as another attempt at the hour record as well. Um, what what was the biggest area of learning in this last year? Because you you are at the very vanguard, the very cutting edge of, of what you do, um, and we're all learning whatever we do in life, whether we like it or not, we are learning all the time. And it might, you might not know you're learning because as soon as you make a mistake, you learn and it's kind of programmed in, isn't it? You, but what do you think for you in 2021, as, as well as enjoying your success, what's the biggest area of learning about yourself that you got that you can maybe apply to, uh, to the team going forward? I think you pretty much nailed it there is that we're always learning and I think creating environments to learn. So I did a lot of tests and not just structured as tests in the sense of like trying to find out if this was faster than the other, but like pushing myself physically and just trying to find out what happens in all these different environments to learn. Because there were so many things that I'd learned from, I don't know, I'd been up to Glasgow, for example, did two blocks up on the velodrome there and did a lot of different weird pacing strategies and yeah just as an environment to learn and things came out from that that otherwise i wouldn't have known about that definitely impacted on my hour record and, and other time trials as well and i think the biggest learning has been just to create environments where we can just keep testing and keep learning and keep trying new things because if not you kind of stagnate quite quickly not that you intentionally do people obviously want to improve but it's not the normal thing it's not the status quo to wake up and be like right today i'm going to change this and change that and change the other because cycling's just kind of stuck in that groove of that kind of monotony of training and progressing very slowly yeah. whereas from a, a sort of um physics perspective you can make big improvements very very quickly but you often just have to uh to roll the dice as it were um and that's that's pretty much how i've learned about a lot of these things just creating the opportunities to go out there and, and to test and um it's not easy to do and to, to be able to go on the velodrome all the time or even like for example i've been to catesby rail tunnel which is a, a tunnel that um just north of silverstone it used to be an old rail tunnel 2.7k dead straight uh the perfect gradient is a lovely test facility but getting access to that was quite hard or is quite hard it's quite expensive but you learn so much from it and um i think just environments like that they just uh give you an opportunity uh, aware of enable myself to move forward quite quickly um, yeah, it's, it is. It is absolutely. It is. It is fascinating because we are traditionally, just as human beings, although we're all different from person to person, but historically, relatively resilient to, as a as a as a population, we are quite actually resilient to change. And it's only the the innovators that push that through. And sometimes it's really really hard work. And um, so the way you convey that learning uh, in the face of people thinking, "Oh, that's not going to work." In, is a challenge in itself, isn't it? You know, um, uh, yeah, you need to so- kind of have that. Uh, you, your standpoint needs to be: I'm probably wrong on all of these things. Yeah, and then it becomes easier to go ahead and be like, well, if I'm probably wrong on this, then let's. It doesn't make just no harm to go and find out if there's something better elsewhere. Yeah. Whereas I think a lot of people have become ingrained in this is how I've always done it. It's been the best way for me. It definitely works. Rather than, yeah trying something a little bit different. That's not to say you should always go out there and be doing something different every day. Your coach would probably get quite annoyed at you if you were one day doing some Tabatas, next day you're doing fasted training, the next day you're doing heat training, the next day you want to do eight hour zone yeah. two rides. It's not not conducive to good physiological adaptations, but um, I think it's a good standpoint to have. Um, that leads us nicely, I think, into um, the book that you wrote, um, Start at the End. Now, I, I'll be honest, Dan, I haven't read it, but I've read a few um, synopsi, um, several synopsises, whether that's correct or not. Um, but um, it's about reverse engineering. Can you, in in, in a nutshell, um, because it's not just from what I can see, just about the science of, of cycling quickly or efficiently. Um, it extends, it's, it's a broader, almost set of ideologies, really, isn't it? Can you explain uh, what the book essentially is about? Because I'm, I think I'm going to have to grab a copy and read it because it's um, really piqued my interest. There's an audio book out there as well that I didn't read, but I got to pick the person who sounded most like me to okay. read. Right, okay. <laughs> if, you're, if you're up for that. Right. Um, but effectively, reverse engineering is something that 
I have naturally done through, I guess, my background and, and through what I've been taught at university, but it's the process of starting with a goal and then breaking it down into its constituent parts. So um, with us on the track, it's very easy with a team pursuit to say, okay, well, we need to go this fast. And then what does it take to go that fast? Well, you can say you need this amount of power, this CDA, that mass, that drivetrain efficiency, this kind of strategy. Um, and then once you've sort of broken it down into those constituent parts, you can then start to build tools around how you measure them, measuring the things that do matter. So, you know, obviously for the track, watts and CDA are probably the most important things. Yeah. So how do you go about measuring them, improving them, putting the strategies in place to do that? Um, how to bring people on that journey with you and get them involved and get them bought into it um, and how to kind of put that plan into action and, and to execute it and to, I guess, enjoy the journey at the same time as well. So it's a lot of um, anecdotes from my experience, primarily around the track, but also some experiences of, of what other people have done out there. Um, so that's like Elon Musk with uh, Tesla and yep. uh, that side of things, but just a lot of different ideas that were very similar to what I'd either experienced or done on the track. So it's not just uh, bore people with, and then we did this on the velodrome, <laughs> we did that yeah. on the velodrome, which sure. um, would quickly, uh, yeah, people would get a bit sick of riding in circles. But um, effectively, yeah, it's just a different method of approaching your end goal uh, that allows you to just break it down, understand it, and therefore improve the constituent parts that do matter. And, and again, I guess, like just by the word reverse engineering, it is something that's quite counterintuitive, I would imagine, isn't it? Because that isn't the way we... We go through our life a lot of the time, is it? We, we might have objectives, but we, we just basically muddle through life and we reach these little forks and we either take a left or a right and off we go. It's, it's, um, we get, I guess that's just life in general, but um, when there's specific targets to, to, to optimize and to do the best you very can, um, the best you can, you kind of work backwards and break it down. It's, it's, really, it's really intriguing gives you a good framework to answer those questions when you do get to a fork as well. Because often, yeah, you'll make the best decision at the time because you think, oh, I need to get better in the short term, so therefore this is the right thing rather than that. Whereas if you know where you need to go to and what the end goal is, i.e. specific in cycling terms, it's nice and easy. You can say, I need to get here with these different variables and physiological metrics then you can go well actually at this point in time it looks like going down there would be a good thing but in the long term actually going down that path is a better option because you have good sight and good understanding of actually where you need to be uh, and you've laid those stepping stones out so you're not distracted and going down all manner of other paths and it's a common thing right you end up with a load of things that you think you should work on and suddenly you get distracted and you do a little bit of this and a little bit of that rather than those key metrics that truly do impact on your performance and you should bin off all the ones at the bottom that aren't really that important and focus on the, the big key meaty ones that are really going to make those big improvements that you need sage advice and oh sorry mate there's a bit of a funny noise oh god what's going on random question alert random question alert random question alert it is time for a random question Oh, God. Oh, I've got an old Russian computer that Sigma Sports insisted they install in, in my house, wherever I moved to, um, which every now and again spits out uh, one or more randomly um, generated questions. So I've, I've torn off this slip. I've never seen this question before, Dan. Um, and here it is. It's, it's quite a long one. Um, so I'm reading this for the first time. But here you go. This is a random question. Right. Dan, you fall asleep and are offered a choice by your dream fairy, okay? Through the power of dreams, you can either revisit one full day of your life of your choice or choose to watch one day of your life in the future, but you have to choose the exact date and who knows if it'll be decent uh, and, and who knows if it'll be decent or rubbish. Which do you choose and why? So revisiting a full day of your life in the past or specifying a date in the future and not knowing if it's going to be good or bad. <laughs> I, did, yeah, I didn't I mean that's just yeah we pulled it out of the ether and there it is oh, it's genuinely quite a hard question I mean it is if there's a lot you can glean from going in the future and I think that's the logical one and it, yeah. it's the one that screams at me as an engineer of like yeah but think of all the things you'll know that other people don't know because then you go back mm -hmm. in time you're like ah but this is going to happen and um, there's a lot of things that could come from that. But I think as well, going back in time, there's a lot of days that I think I'd like to just relive just because they were really good, fun days. Like the, okay. the, the sort of 24-hour window of Joss breaking the hour and me breaking the hour was actually like pretty awesome. And even though I wouldn't do anything different, I'd go back just to relive it because it was such a high. That's such cool. a good experience. That is a, I, I, I thought you might go into the future 
Um, but uh, but that as an answer, uh, yeah, I mean, what a day. I mean, that's it's rare that that would kind of happen again. It would to anybody, really. It's so pretty, pretty unprecedented, but uh, a, a cracking answer. And, um, yeah, sorry about the breakup um, in, in the jingle there. Oh, Niall, we'll have to sort that out in the future. Um, we're going to wrap up now, but I've got one more question for you, and it, it is slightly random. Um, and you can only answer with one – well, two as many words as you want, but um, if Dave B – called you up um, and said um, Dan we've got a bit of a problem um, we can only pay you for next year's work with Ineos in pies um, <laughs> what filling would you choose um, to, for, to be paid in pies uh, beef and stilton beef and straight the beef and stilton oh now I'm hungry because I'm not eating oh I mean yeah. what, what pastry would you go for puff or, or classic short crust uh, probably a classic short crust uh, I'm a big fan of pie minister uh, and Joss is not a pie fan and uh, she's come up north because they don't have pies down south. And they're like, what, what's a pie? <laughs> like, you need a pie in your life. Oh, God, that's a cracking choice. I've got prop. And that's bit, I don't want to sound too weird. I am actually salivating, mate. Uh, <laughs> or, as my wife would say, as Holly would say, your, your, your tabs are laughing. That's what she'd say. Um, so Stilton and Beef, fantastic. What a way to end. What's been a fantastic pod. Dan, it's been a, a real pleasure. Um, I hope people enjoy it i'm sure they will um all the best this year with your own individual um aims aims and pursuits and of course have a have a you know a thoroughly enjoyable enjoyable and successful year with ineos as well and i might bump into you on the road because i'll be out and about but but dan it's been a pleasure thank you thanks for having me yeah hopefully see you on the road at some point What a fascinating chat I had with Dan. Super geeky, absolutely loved it. Now, I'm projecting a bit here, but I reckon Dan might find those seven missing watts and pinch the world hour record soon. However, the real question is, will he be able to resist the urge to deflate Philip Hogan's tyres a touch when he gives it a go, thus holding on to the title for himself? Hashtag marginal losses. Time will tell. Thanks to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you as ever for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod and why not recommend it to Dan's neighbours who might be wondering why there's a museum of cycling paraphernalia in a skip outside his mum's house in Stone. Finally, a massive thanks again to Dan for joining us on the podcast today. I hope he continues to break new ground, innovate and to find what's where what's have never been found before. Cheers all, stay safe and goodbye. Thank you.